0: Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 115, The War with Denmark, part one. By the end of the 13th century, the key foundations of the Hanseatic League are laid. The trade routes that connect the Baltic to Western Europe are largely under the control of merchants who had come from northern Germany and settled along the Baltic shore. Four great contours in Novgorod, Bergen, Bruges and London have been set up. The cities then make up the League from Tallinn to Cologne, have gained city laws, built their walls and selected their city councils. We are now entering the calamitous 14th century, a time of war, spiritual disorientation, plague and deteriorating climate. These four riders of the apocalypse devastate formerly flourishing lands and cities across Western Europe, delivering a sucker punch that brings 300 years of economic expansion to a screeching halt. But, as they say in Asterix, all of Europe is occupied with the challenges of the 14th century? Well, not entirely. There is a corner of the world where a league of merchant cities is heading for the zenith of its economic, financial and military power. Now, before we get into this fascinating subject, it's time to do my little plea for support again. As the history of the Germans has grown and grown these last two years, It has taken up more and more of my life. Now that's great for me, because I massively enjoy doing this, but it's bad news for my cash balance, since all that fun keeps me from other money-generating activities. I have been offered a not insignificant boost to my income if I were to allow advertising in the show, an offer I have rejected. Which means the podcast remains advertising-free and even more dependent on the support from my lovely patrons. I really appreciate that support you guys provide and I am extremely grateful. And if any one of you who is not yet a patron and wants to bask in all that appreciation and gratitude, you can still do that by signing up on patreon.com slash Germans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com slash support. All that for the price of a chocolate croissant per month, which isn't even good for you. So thanks a lot to Brian W., Ian R., Richard K., and Pitya, who've already signed up. I guess it's time we anchor this story on the timeline. These last episodes we did look at how the various major trading routes of the Hanse got established and how they each developed during the 12th, 13th and 14th century. By and large, I tried to get each of these stories to the middle of the 14th century, which I think has worked out more or less which means the podcast has now, after a mere 115 episodes, officially progressed into the late Middle Ages. Yippee! But that is sadly the last outburst of joy you are going to hear about the calamitous 14th century, as Barbara Tuchman called it in her most famous book, The Distant Mirror. I know that her take on the period had suffered a lot of criticism over the years and that some of her assessments are no longer standing up to historical scrutiny. But still... It is an exceptionally well-written book that I can strongly recommend, and some of her elementary notions about the 14th century are still valid. To summarise, the 14th century was not great. It was particularly not great if you were French. The Hundred Years' War kicked off in 1337 and brings death, famine and misery to northern and southwestern France. What kept the devastation going for so long was the combination of England's superiority in open battles and her complete inability to hold on to the territorial gains in a country many times larger and many times richer than itself. The unending conflict created mercenary troops that roamed the land even during periods when the parties were at least officially at peace. Meanwhile, the transfer of the papacy from Rome to Avignon and hence under the control of the French monarch was seen as a travesty by contemporaries. Things got worse when St. Catherine of Siena famous for an obsession with blood and Jesus' foreskin, galvanized public opinion to the point that Pope Gregory XI returned to Rome. Once arrived there, the Pope promptly died, resulting in a schism where the cardinals in Avignon and those in Rome each elected a new Pope. Attempts to resolve the situation by making both popes stand down and elect a new one resulted in three competing popes. We might not regard this as overly concerning, but for the medieval mind that was a catastrophe. Choosing the wrong Pope could result in being cast down into the sixth circle of hell, trapped in flaming tombs. Now, you might find yourself in august company – for instance, Emperor Frederick II is supposed to reside here as well – but it still sounds quite uncomfortable. Overshadowing all this was the great scourge of the 14th century. The Black Death. It first appeared in Europe in 1346, brought in most likely by Genoese traders, who had picked it up during the siege of their colony in Kaffa in Crimea. Allegedly, the besieging Mongols had brought the plague from Central Asia, and when their soldiers had succumbed to the disease, their corpse were trebucheted into the town to force its surrender. Kaffa unfortunately resisted the siege, and the returning Genoese distributed the disease across the Mediterranean. The Black Death is caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis, a fact that was only discovered in 1894 by two scientists operating independently, the Frenchman Alexandre Yersin and the Japanese bacteriologist Kitasato Shibasaburo. In 1898, it was discovered that the main vector of transmission were fleas who moved between rodents and humans. The effect of an infection with Yersinia pestis is devastating. There are three types of the plague the bacteria causes. The most famous is the bubonic plague, that manifests in bubois, a swelling of the lymph nodes mainly in the groin and the armpits. But there's also the pneumonic plague and the septicemic plague, which have less obvious symptoms, which is why we hear of people dying literally mid-sentence. 30-60% of those affected by the bubonic plague die if left untreated, whilst a cool 100% of those who catch pneumonic and septicemic plague do not make it. Fun fact about the pneumonic plague, you do not even need fleas for that. Simple inhalation of a respiratory droplet of a patient with pneumonic plague can result in infection and guaranteed death. Today, plague is less of a problem if identified early and treated with antibiotics, But in the 14th century, nobody knew about the miraculous attributes of Penicillium rubens, and so the only effective way to manage the disease was quarantine. And even that often failed, as the vectors were fleas, not humans. How many died is a subject of debate, which is unsurprising, since there was no census of the population before and after. I get the impression that most calculations revert ultimately back to the contemporary estimate. Of about one third of the population. But the impact varied considerably. Sometimes its geography, Milan for example was less affected than Tuscany, though why that was is not entirely obvious. More obvious is the fact that communities that live in close proximity, particularly monasteries, were heavily affected. Often 80-90% to 90% of the brothers and sisters perished. On the other hand, the elites who had the ability to flee into the countryside like the seven young women and the three young men in *De Cameron*, appear to have had a mortality of only about a quarter. For our friends, the Hanseatic League, good news was, it took three years from the first reported cases in Messina and Sicily until the disease took hold in Scandinavia, and then another year to make it to Poland. Well, when it came, it came with force. In 1350, the city council of Bremen ordered to list all the names of everyone who had died from the plague, and it collected 6,966 names. Add to that an estimated 1,000 unknown corpses, and assuming the city had about twelve to 15,000 inhabitants at the time, more than half fell victim to the disease. Hamburg reported the death of 12 out of its 34 bakers, 18 out of its 40 butchers, 27 out of its 50 civil servants, and a staggering 16 out of its 21 members of its council. Similarly, Lübeck, Wismar, Rival and Lüneburg reported death rates of 30% and more amongst the members of their city councils. To top the horrors of the 14th century, the constant warfare, the spiritual disorientation and the plague, there was climate change. The great medieval warming period is coming to an end. So instead of having a tailwind to its economic progress, Western Europe now has to deal with a consistent headwind that will peak in the Little Ice Age between 1600 and 1800. Food security was already on the edge before the cooling period started, as we have seen when we looked at the Great Eastern migration from the population centers in Flanders, Holland and the Rhineland. What we have now is a society that is constantly just one bad harvest away from widespread famine. So I guess we can conclude the 14th century is a pretty bad time to be alive. I was in France on holiday this summer and on the way down we stopped at Beauvais, a city of 50,000 just north of Paris. The reason to stop in Beauvais, apart from its lovely locals, excellent hotels and great food, is its absolutely heart-stopping cathedral. It is France's tallest cathedral, with a nave that rises 47 metres above the ground. To put that in context, Milan Cathedral has a 45-meter nave, Notre-Dame in Paris rises 35 meters and Winchester a mere 24. And even more astounding, the nave of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, built centuries later, also falls one meter short of this medieval skyscraper. But there's a rub. The church was never finished. The combined effects of the plague and the Hundred Years' War devastated the rich cloth industry of the town and there was never enough money to complete the edifice. Where the main part of the church should have been built stands the 10th century old cathedral, looking positively tiny next to its ambitious intended replacement. Little illustrates so clearly both the immense economic growth during the so-called static middle ages and the abruptness with which it came to an end. But hey, for once, we, the history of the Germans, find ourselves on the lucky side of history. Sure, the citizens of the great Hanseatic cities did not escape the plague, bad weather, wars and the papal schism. But they did work through it a lot better than the beaten-up citizens of Beauvais. The reason the Hanseatic cities got through the challenges of the 14th century are manifold. The first one is that apart from losing some money on the crowns of Edward III, their involvement in the Hundred Years' War was almost zero. The same seems to have applied for the schism. The Empire and Scandinavia stuck largely with the Roman Pope and hence there was less of the uncertainty that prevailed in the western half of the continent, where territories moved back and forth in their obedience and guidance about what to believe changed around all the time. So I did try to find a reference to the schism in the secondary sources on the Hansa that I am using and I found absolutely nothing. Which gets us to the plague. Obviously. The fact that millions of customers had died and that their own cities had been depopulated and that many farms were running out of farmhands weren't good bits of news. But there were mitigating factors. Cities remained attractive. If only because they offered relief from servitude. If you could hold out inside for a year. So many serfs and free peasants moved into the empty houses of the plague victims in the cities. We find that by the end of the 14th century, the Hanseatic cities have regained their population size from the pre-plague times. There was another, probably the only beneficial impact from the plague, and that was a sustained shortage of labor, in particular farm labor and menial labor in cloth manufacturing and other manufacturing jobs, which meant that the cost of labor increased significantly. There are various studies looking at data in England and France that suggest an increase in wages by somewhere between 30 and 50 percent, most of which was in real terms. That wage increase caused huge headaches for landowners who petitioned the local rulers to freeze wages. But even where that happened, such rules proved unenforceable since laborers simply scampered off. So Pay levels were going up, allegedly for the first and only time in pre-modern history. That is good news for the workers, but it's also great news for the long-distance traders, specifically for the Hanseatic merchants. Because their main export products was food, in particular grain and fish. Before the plague, only the cheaper grain was sold to laborers, whilst the other goods went to burghers and the rich. After the plague, once these poor laborers had a few pennies in their pocket, they could themselves buy some fine Baltic herring and wash it down with an even finer pint of Einbecker beer. Best in the world. And even for the luxury products, beeswax, pelt, Flemish cloth and wine, the market wasn't seemingly so bad. The dramatic surge in religious devotion after the plague should have led to a surge in demand for the finest beeswax from Novgorod to appease an apparently enraged deity. And the rapid demise of many rich men and women caused a rapid redistribution of wealth. These newly minted millionaires were oh so well aware of the fragility of life. And since the play came back in regular intervals, many thought best thing to do was to spend it all as long as one is still alive. It is in the middle of the 14th century that fashion in the true sense emerges. This is when we see proper tailoring for the first time. Until now, most expensive dresses were essentially robes with straight seams and a lot of adornment. Now we see curved seams that allow the creation of tight-fitting trousers and shirts. A French chronicler writes that around the year 1350, i.e. immediately after the first wave of the plague, that, quote, men in particular, noblemen and their squires, took to wearing tunics so short and so tight that they revealed what modesty bids us to hide. Hanseatic merchants did not only bring the cloth and the knowledge of how to create this new look to Scandinavia and northern Germany, they also brought the fur needed to line the elegant coats worn over the Côte Hardie, the body-hugging upper garment. Finally, what really made the Hanseatic merchants indispensable was in the times when things got really tough. A bad harvest could easily tip the cities of Flanders, northern France or England into outright famine. But the hinterland of the Hanseatic cities, even though their production is likely to have declined due to labor shortages and the deteriorating climate, still produced a surplus of grain above local demand and that surplus became a lifeline during these regularly occurring outbreaks of famine. Bottom line is that the 14th century was by no means a time of decline and desperation for the Hanseatic League. It was in fact the time when it reached the zenith of its power, wealth and influence. They turned a challenge into an opportunity, to use my most cringeworthy management consulting speak. All these smart ways to keep your head above water and avoid the pitfalls of the treacherous 14th century did, however, rarely feature in the histories of the Hanseatic League I read as a child. But I found there were the heroic deeds of the men of Lübeck, Rostock, and Wismar fighting a war at sea against the mighty king of Denmark, Valdemar Dorn. A lot of swords clanging and daring raids by gallant apprentices seemed a lot more exciting than the economics of grain and beer. But these things happen. But the way they came about says a lot about the way the merchant princes of the Hanse thought about war and how that so fundamentally differed from the way their royal and ducal neighbours perceived it. Now, The neighbours that matter most to the Hanseatic League were the power centres around the Baltic. First and foremost, the Kingdom of Denmark. But also the strengthening kingdoms of Sweden as well as that of Norway. And on the southern shore we have the Teutonic Knights, the Dukes of Pomerania and Mecklenburg, the Markgraf of Brandenburg and the Counts of Holstein. Though Denmark was nominally the largest, richest and most powerful of them, the century between 1240 and 1340 was one of decline and almost complete disintegration of the kingdom. The successors of the two great valdemars one called Abel and then all the others either Eric or Christopher, displayed a truly astounding level of infighting, murder, recklessness and incompetence. Waldemar II's eldest son, King Eric IV Ploughpenny, was murdered when he was a guest at his younger brother Abel's house. So, as a reward, Abel became king, but he lasted only a year and a half before he was himself killed by a rebellious peasant who was reluctant to pay the increased taxation. The next brother was King Christopher I, and he lasted seven years, but spent most of it in conflict with his nephew, the son of Abel. King Christopher I dined unexpectedly after taking Holy Communion. Rumors were that he had been poisoned by an abbot in retaliation for his oppression of the church. Christopher I's son was King Eric V, called King Eric Clipping, so-called because of his habit to devalue the currency by clipping off a piece of the silver. Eric Klipping, who had spent most of his early life as a prisoner in the courts of Holstein and then the Markgrafs of Brandenburg, started his reign by being captured and imprisoned now by his own nobles. He continued his father's conflict with the church and many of his nobles, which resulted in him being murdered in 1286. Next up in the line of succession is King Eric VI, called Menvid, whose first act was to avenge his father's death. He convicted a number of senior Danish nobles to exile and expropriation for the crime. The problem was that at least some of them might have been innocent, but more importantly that he let them live. They moved across to Sweden, where they initiated a 30-year-long guerrilla war against King Erik VI that came with a side dish of piracy. Unperturbed by this conflict, gallant King Erik VI tried to revive the dream of the two Valdemars to build a Scandinavian empire under Danish rule. He combined this ambition with the propensity for lavish expenditure, in particular for tournaments. One of those he held in Rostock under the eyes of the worried citizens who feared, with good reason, that this chivalric pursuit could at any moment turn into a bloody siege of the town. All of King Eric's great adventures consumed a truly epic amount of cash. Taxation had risen all throughout this troubled period and was merciless. When a famine struck in 1315, King Eric refused to lower the nominal amount of tax to be paid, resulting in a peasant revolt that cost even more to suppress than the outstanding taxes. And a lot of the equally costly conflict with the Church stemmed from the desire of the kings to collect taxes from the clergy. When King Eric VI finally died in 1319, the crown went to his brother Christopher II, who inherited a kingdom that was financially and morally bankrupt. Not only had the nobles and the church used the weakness of the various kings to establish themselves as the true masters of the kingdom, the constant infighting had also sucked in a lot of foreigners looking to take advantage of the chaos. This chaos, by the way, did not just engulf Denmark. Sweden and Norway, too, were riven with infighting and continuous succession crises there seemed to have been two approaches for foreigners seeking a juicy chunk of Scandinavian territory. One was the classic model of marriage alliances. That came usually with a dowry that could include important castles and lands in exchange for military support. Given that both Sweden and Denmark were at least formally an elective monarchy, where legitimacy could be transferred through the female line, these marriage alliances had the added benefit of occasionally producing a viable contender for one of the Scandinavian crowns. The three families that pursued this strategy most persistently and most successfully were the Dukes of Mecklenburg and Pomerania and the Margraves of Brandenburg. Pretty much all of the kings of Denmark I mentioned here were married to daughters of these three or to other Scandinavian monarchs' offspring. The intermarriage within a relatively small pool actually added to the mass, as it produced a near-infinite supply of contenders on all sides. The other approach was taken by the Counts of Holstein. Though they too married their daughters into the royal families and took wives from there, their main approach was to offer military and financial assistance on credit. Credit that was secured by mortgages. And these aren't mortgages just over some bits of land. These were mortgages over whole counties and even duchies. Two Holstein counts were most astute in this game. One was Gerhard III of holstein rendsburg and the other James of Holstein-Plön. Having inherited comparatively small territories that had come about when the old county of Holstein was divided up, these two men seemed to have become some sort of war entrepreneurs. An early form of the Italian condottier of the 15th century, who could raise and then rent out entire armies. King Eric VI was the Holsteiner's best customer. Always fighting one war or another and hosting lavish tournaments, he ended up mortgaging more and more of his kingdom to the two counts. Gerhard ended up with all of Jutland and Funen, while James gained Zeeland and the Southern Isles. If you know Denmark, that's pretty much all of it. Well, apart from Skane, which at the time was still Danish, but hey, not for long. The Holstein counts and the Danish magnates were quite happy with this situation, and when Christopher II ascended the ramshackle throne his brother had left him, They made him sign a coronation charter that basically forbade him to do anything without their consent. Christopher then tried his darndest to disregard this provision and rebuild some sort of royal power. So the magnates and the Germans ousted him in 1326, formally raising one of the king's nephews to the throne, but de facto reigning without a king. This magnate's republic did not work out too well as they all began squabbling amongst themselves. Even the two Holstein counts got into a disagreement. And that weakened the Danish state even more, so that the peasants of Skane asked the Swedish king to assume control over them. Skane, as you know, is the territory on the eastern shore of the Öresund, where the annual herring market takes place, the largest market for fish in a Europe that ate fish 140 days a year, and which was the most important contributor to the coffers of the Hanseatic merchants which is why they get involved. The Eurasund and the herring trade in Scan is of crucial importance for the long-distance trade out of the Baltic. One reason is the sheer scale of the herring business. The other is geography. By the 14th century there were two established routes by which the goods from the Baltic could be transported westwards to the important markets in Bruges and London. One was a land route via Lübeck and Hamburg. The other was to sail round Jutland, which meant going through the Eurasund. Keeping those lines open, safe and most importantly avoiding high tariffs for the transit were of vital importance to the Hanse. The way I achieved this so far had been through diplomacy. The burgermeisters or mayors of the great Hanseatic cities, as well as the other senior members of the city council, were experienced long-distance traders. One of the skills they needed to get where they got to was negotiation knowing exactly what combination of price and conditions the other side could be made to agree to, was their second nature. They appreciated the importance of having more reliable and more timely information than their adversaries, and they were able to think calmly through complex problems. Hence, the time of the disintegration of the Scandinavian Kingdom was a walk in the park for the Hansards. They could play any side against any other in this game of three-dimensional chess and always walk away with improved trading privileges, lower taxes and promises of safe passage, be it from kings or from pirates, or from kings that had become pirates, or from pirates that had become kings. The diplomatic effort was always underpinned with the threat of boycotts and embargoes. Whoever failed to respond to the softly-softly approach could suddenly find himself cut off from the grain supply or unable to sell their goods into the European market. And as a means of last resort, The Hanse was prepared to go to war, but only ever as a means of last resort. That is not out of cowardice. These men are used to dangerous journeys and the need to defend your goods and your rights with the sword. They simply believed that war was very rarely a profitable undertaking. As the legendary Lübeck Bürgermeister Heinrich Kastor put it, it's always easier to hoist the banner of war, but a lot more costly taking it down in honour. So Lübeck did go to war, when they supported the German princes against Waldemar II in the Battle of Bornhöved, and they helped King Abel to get on the throne by providing soldiers. But this was always based on a cold and level-headed calculation of the odds of success. None of that for the honor of the kingdom once more into the breach nonsense their aristocratic neighbors engaged in. The other cases where the cities went to war was to defend themselves against the territorial princes. During the time of the VI's expensive war effort in northern Germany, his allies tried to subdue the cities of Rostock and Wismar by siege. These sieges ended regularly with truces under which the burghers would pay off the city lord and swear allegiance. But nothing really changed, and when King Eric's money ran out, the cities reverted back to the status quo ante. So, everything is all right as far as the Hansards are concerned until about 1330. That's after the debacle in Scania. And that's when Christopher II makes a comeback. The magnates and the Germans decide that they need a unifying figure for the state and they call him back to the throne. Christopher tries again to be a real king and so he exploits the divisions between the two Holstein counts. He gets defeated in 1331 and in the post-war settlement he is allowed to retain the title of king but without any power. He ends his days in a small house in Lolland to live in, lonely and forgotten. In 1332, he died a broken man. After that, Denmark has no king. Christopher II's older sons, Eric and Otto, died around the same time from wounds received in battles against the Holsteins. So, Count Gerhard of holstein rendsburg becomes the de facto ruler of Denmark. That is a situation the Hanse is extremely uncomfortable with. Gerhard III still controlled one shore of the Oehrsund as well as the territory through which the wares moved between Lübeck and Hamburg. So he was at least theoretically able to cut off both of the major trade routes out of the Baltic. The two cities of Hamburg and Lübeck are trying to keep things on an even keel and agree to maintain the peace with the mighty count. But secretly they are trying to undermine his position. Their host Gerhard's enemies inside Lübeck where they are looking for ways to topple the Holsteiners and to rebuild the Danish kingdom. But Count Gerhard also doesn't have an easy time. The cost of suppressing the regular uprisings against his rule exceeded the income he generated from Jutland and Funen. And then there is the third son of King Christopher, called Waldemar. This Waldemar had secured the support of his relatives, the Markgrafs of Brandenburg, for his bid to return the dynasty which gave the rebellion a focal point. Now, Count Gerhard was a real politician. He was a war entrepreneur, he was not an aristocratic Hurrah Henry. He realized that the game was ultimately up, and so he entered into negotiations. He was trading the restoration of the Danish monarchy against the permanent cessation of Schleswig to the Holsteins. But before these negotiations could be concluded, Count Gerhard of Holstein, ruler of Denmark, was killed by insurgents. That paved the way for one of medieval Denmark's political geniuses, the aforementioned Valdemar, younger son of King Christopher II, who was elected by the Danehof, the Danish parliament, as King Valdemar V. Nobody expected much of the twenty-year-old who had lived in exile at the imperial court for most of his childhood and adolescence. He was considered so insignificant that the magnates did not even bother asking him to sign a coronation charter. But he managed to slowly but steadily rebuild the Danish monarchy. He looked after the pennies, and when he had enough of those, he paid off one of the mortgages his father had taken out over Jutland and then Sealand And as his power grew, he could use not just carrot but also stick, forcing the bishop of Roskilde to hand over the castle of Copenhagen, where he established his new headquarters. Copenhagen was an excellent base to impose tariffs on the shipping that passed the Øresund. He sold Estonia to the Teutonic Knights, raising more money to pay off more mortgages. Gradually, the last Holstein positions on Seeland and Funen fell until only southern Schleswig remained in their hands. In 1354, Valdemar IV, by now called Valdemar Dorn, the man who brought a new day to the Kingdom of Denmark. Gathered all the nobles and made them sign a charter whereby they gave up all the rights they had amassed since the time of King Christopher II. Denmark was back in the game. In 1360, Valdemar used the succession crisis in Sweden to take back Skane. And to secure his flank against the Swedish counterattack, Valdemar Dorn took his army to Gotland and took Visby. Visby was a member of the Hanseatic League and not a small one, it was still an important city that had played a crucial role in its early history. And that is the point where the Hanseatic League cannot take it any longer. They had initially welcomed the rise of Waldemar Dorn as a counterweight to the Holsteiners, and when his position became stronger and stronger, they tried to negotiate with him. In particular, they needed him to lower the tariffs through the Ursund, where he by now had built several castles, including the mighty Helsingborg. But this was one of those situations that had no diplomatic solution. King Valdemar needed the tax income from the Ursen to fund his rebuilding of the Danish state. There was no similar source of wealth in the kingdom than this. Well, apart from the herring market in Falsterberg, he now also controlled and he also taxed. On the other side, the Hanseatic League could not accept free Danish control of the Ursen that would allow Dutch and English merchants to enter and to trade on the same conditions in Falsterbo, and even across the Baltic. By now, the Hanseatic League had turned from an association of merchants to an association of cities. There wasn't much difference between the two models, since most Hanseatic cities were pure trading cities, where the other guilds were of secondary importance. So the merchants were still pulling the strings. But it still marked a change. When the Hanseatic cities came together for their first Hansetag their first official gathering in 1356. Then they debated the sanctions against the city of Bruges we talked about in the episode about Bergen and Bruges. The next Hansetag was in the 1360s, when the Wendish cities Lübeck, Wismar and Rostock decided to take on Waldemar head-on. They formed an alliance with Waldemar's enemies, the Holsteiners, with King Magnus of Sweden, with his son King Hakon of Norway, as well as the Teutonic Knights. A fleet set sail out of Lübeck in the spring of 1362, heading for the Öresund. There they were to meet up with Swedish troops and take one of the mighty new fortresses Waldemar had built to control his most valuable source of income. The man who led the expedition was Johann Wittenberg, the Bürgermeister of Lübeck. Six months later, half the ships are at the bottom of the sea, and Johann of Wittenberg has lost his head. How this first major war of the Hanseatic League could go so badly wrong is subject of next week's episode. And that is when we get properly into the clanging of swords and the ramming of ships and the glory of the Hanseatic League. I hope you will join us again. Before I go, let me thank all of you supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans, It's thanks to you that this show still does not have to do any advertising for products you do not want to hear about. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. And just to remind you, the sub-podcast The Hanseatic League is still running. So if you want to point a friend or relative towards the history of the Germans but want to avoid confusion, just send them there. The Hanseatic League is available everywhere. You get the history of the Germans. And last but not least, the bibliography. For this episode, I again relied heavily on Erich Hoffmann, Konflikte und Ausgleich in den skandinavischen Reichen in Die Hanse, Lebenswirklichkeit und Mythos herausgegeben von Jürgen Bracker, Volker Henn und Rainer Postel, Philipp Dollinger, die Hanse und Rolf Hammel-Kiesloh, die Hanse.